Databytes are data and society speaker series designed to bridge our interdisciplinary research with broader public conversations about the societal implications of data and automation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Databyte 137, Ad Tech and the Attention Economy, featuring Tim Huang, the author of Subprime Attention Crisis. My name is Maura Weigel. I'm a socio-technical security researcher here at Data and Society, and I'll be your host for today, supported by my team behind the curtain, CJ, Rigo, and Eli. For those of you who don't know us yet, Data and Society is an independent research institute studying the social implications of data and automation. We produce original research and convene multidisciplinary thinkers to challenge the power and purpose of technology and society. You can learn more about us through our website at datasociety.net. To begin, I ask you to join me in acknowledging where Data and Society was founded, Lenape Hoking, a network of rivers and islands in the Atlantic Northeast we now refer to as New York City. Today, we are connected via a vast array of servers situated on stolen land. We acknowledge the dispossession of indigenous land by the data-driven logic of white settler expansion and uplift the sovereignty of indigenous people, data, and territory. We commit to dismantling the ongoing practices of colonialism and its material implications in our digital world, knowing we interface with power differently based on our race, class, gender, and ability. Now, I want to say just a little more about our speaker today. Although Tim was a 2014-2015 inaugural fellow at Data and Society and might not need much introduction here. Tim is a writer, lawyer, and technology policy researcher based in New York. Previously, he was at Google, where he was the company's global public policy lead on artificial intelligence. Forbes has also dubbed him the busiest man on the internet. So I'm very happy to welcome Tim back to Data and Society, where he has a lot of history. It's also a special privilege for me uh, to welcome him here, because he was also one of the first inaugural authors in Logic Magazine, a magazine I co-founded back in 2016. I first got to know Tim when he wrote an article for our first issue called The Madness of the Crowd, which I think uh, we'll have in the chat. This was an article about, it was really a brilliant analysis and I think a groundbreaking analysis of this mood shift uh, that I think a lot of us observed around 2016, late 2016, early 2017, where a lot of the positive properties we'd attributed to social networks and digital media suddenly seemed to be flipped. And the very same features that we thought would promote cognitive surplus and good social movements now had brought about uh, a president, presidential uh, election and uh, all sorts of other problems uh, that hadn't necessarily been anticipated in earlier rhetorics. I think now this has become a kind of common sense narrative, maybe even a cliche. We could talk about that uh, with the tech lash, so-called. Uh, but Tim's book, which he'll be sharing with us today, I think builds on that argument and really advances it sort of advances and intervenes in the state of the field, saying that, arguing that both the hype and the critique of big tech companies uh, may be more similar than we're used to thinking. 
it's a provocative argument that upends assumptions of a lot of the most prominent tech critics. Tim was joking at an event earlier this week uh, about his ideal reader that his goal is to make absolutely everyone mad, uh, which seems noble to me. It's also a topic of keen interest, I think, to a lot of us here at Data and Society. It has a lot of implications for how we think about disinformation and media manipulation. Uh, also for thinking about privacy, digital health, tech addiction. Uh, and I think speaks too to this new initiative and in conference against platform determinism. I think methodologically speaking, it really highlights uh, a core value of getting close to the machine, sort of building specific ground up accounts of how our socio-technical infrastructures work. Uh, so I'm really excited for the conversation. And without further ado, ask you to join me in giving Tim a silent virtual round of applause. And Tim, maybe you could tell us a bit more about the book. Sure, definitely. Thanks, Maura. Um, so yeah, so let me begin, I think, the, with the origin of the book, um, which was really kind of based in the, the two years that I spent uh, at, at Google, um, basically running public policy on AI and machine learning. And I think one of the most striking things being at Google is that, you know, a lot of the discussion on the day to day is about, um, you know, self-driving cars or artificial intelligence or uh, uncomfortable partnerships with the military industrial complex. And, um, you know, what was fascinating is that, right, if you look at the balance sheet, you look at the uh, SEC filings that Google has to do on a quarterly basis, that's actually not where a lot of the money comes from. In fact, 80% of Google's funding is still from ads. And of course, people know this, but if you ask them, like, so how does that ad system actually work? Can you walk me through it on a step-by-step -step basis? Um, people sort of, you know, I think it becomes here be dragons territory very quickly. And so there's this very funny irony that, you know, the business model, this core business model of the internet is in some ways a, a rumor. It's an urban legend, right? We know that these businesses run on ads, but we actually don't know much more than that. Um, and so the beginning of the book was to really kind of take a look at this business model, right, which has really been the rocket fuel, the financial engine that has driven uh, the internet over the last 10 to 15, 20 years. Um, and what's interesting, probably from the point of view of data and society, is how much sort of the specific kind of online advertising infrastructure that now exists is really built on the kind of credibility and the power of data. Right? The dream is that we have an incredible amount of information about consumers, and we have the tools to pinpoint with laser accuracy a message to the person. Um, and we can build these behavioral models that allow us to do persuasion in a way that has never been possible before. And this has been the claim of industry. Right? This has been the argument that Eric Schmidt made early in the days of Google to argue for why Coca-Cola and the big sort of companies of the world should invest in and, and buy advertising on Google versus, you know, say television or magazines or, or billboards. And I think it's really interesting that even critics have brought this narrative, right? That critics have said, you know, the problem with Mark Zuckerberg is he has this mind control, right, effectively, right? He has the ability to reach into the minds of Americans and, and push around um, um, our belief systems, right? Um, and as yet, as yet, despite these kind of business claims, these claims among the sort of most vociferous critics of the tech industry, we have these really interesting stories pop up, uh, especially in the last few years. So I'll, I'll talk about two of them, um, but the book is kind of chock full if you really like this sort of thing. The first one is a few years ago, Procter & Gamble, which is one of the biggest advertisers in the world, um, decided that what they would do is cut their digital advertising spending. 
not just by a little, but by a lot. They cut it on the order of about $200 million, just sliced it out of the budget. And it ended up being this great natural experiment in trying to figure out, does all this online advertising stuff actually make a difference? And they waited, they waited, uh, they waited, and they waited. And they actually discovered, they, they reported the year after that they did this, that there was actually no noticeable change in consumer behavior. And in fact, the reach of their advertising had gone up just about, about 10%, um, largely due to efficiencies from cutting out all this money from the budget. So that's one story that I find really interesting. A second one is that Google itself, a number of years ago, did a report that indicated that close to 60% of ads are never seen at all. That is to say that they are delivered, but there's not even the chance for them to persuade someone because they end up you know, below, below the fold uh, or oddly placed or otherwise not delivered, which is just staggering, right? You think about 60% of all this activity that's happening in this market, this jet fuel that has driven Silicon Valley being basically worthless. Um, it starts to raise some really interesting questions. Um, and you know, the book, the argument of the book is basically to say, okay, what is going on here? And is sort of this financial engine ultimately a kind of bubble? And the way it goes about doing this is basically to say, what is the kind of advertising ecosystem that has been built, right? Because when I say advertising, people sometimes think, you know, John Hamm and Mad Men, right? Like guys saying really terrible things in wood paneled offices. But actually the modern kind of advertising ecosystem is very much kind of a commodified marketplace. It is a financialized marketplace. And in fact, the explicit goal of a lot of the people that architected the early days of the programmatic, what's known as the programmatic ad infrastructure, wanted to design it in the image of the stock market. And so the game of the book, right, the argument of the book is basically to try to make the, uh, the, the case that we can actually use the pathologies of these financialized markets as a way of thinking about the future of the attention economies of the web. And that what looks like, you know, an incredibly solid, you know, rock solid granite footing for the internet uh, may actually be a lot more delicate and brittle than it looks. Um, and ask the question, what does it mean if it all disappears? Um, and so that's just a quick intro, but I know we'll get into a lot more of the specifics. Thanks so much, Tim. Uh, I already want to break script and ask you a specific question uh, about about Google. In the book, you talk about search engines as sort of early pioneers of this new model of advertising and AdWords and AdSense specifically. I was wondering how, um, how specific what you're describing feels to Google, sort of how is there, any, are there any important differences between programmatic advertising on say Facebook and Instagram or other, other social media platforms in contrast to search engines? Or does it all feel like sort of part of the same bubble? Well, search is really interesting because in some ways it was the prototypical case uh, for, for programmatic advertising. Basically, Google had built this search engine that delivered you know, thousands and thousands of hits a day. There was so much attention flowing to it um, that really the rise of programmatic advertising comes from the task of trying to build an advertising ecosystem that could keep up with the speed at which Google was growing. And there's actually a great interesting history of this, uh, actually, I think, interestingly, like a labor history, where early in the days of Google, there's this, there's this office in New York with a bunch of old-timey ad people who are still getting people on phones and saying, like, we really need you to put a banner ad on Google. And there's this constant suspicion that Mountain View is trying to automate them out of a job. Um, and there's this kind of interesting tension between, like, what is, what is valuable labor in the world of advertising? Um, and I do think that that template that Google built is similar to what you see on, say, a Facebook or a Snapchat, right, uh, or an Instagram, for that matter. 
I think the main difference, which is frequently debated about in the ad industry, is what is the kind of intention that is captured by the advertisement? So in search, the idea is search tends to be, the, the, the adage is basically search tends to be more effective because it, it is trying to get you when you have expressed the want into the world, right? So you famously, um, mesothelioma, right, is a search term that is like incredibly expensive. And it's in part because when you search for it, you typically have it and it's very powerful to advertise against that term. You know, in display advertising, it's a little less clear, right? Like you're just browsing through social media and Facebook's like, while you're here, would you like to buy a mattress? And it's unclear if like that captures intent in the same way. So the underlying plumbing is the same, but I think the channels capture very different aspects of experience and what is attempted to be sort of commercialized. That makes a lot of sense. Now I want to ask you about what the other really expensive search terms are, uh, but unless you have a, a good one ready to mind, uh, I'll, I'll spare, you, spare everyone that. Um, you talk a couple of times in the book about this famous ad industry adage, this John Wanamaker line that I know half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. I just don't know what half. Uh, and I was curious, reflecting on, on those passages in your book, sort of how novel, this problem you're describing of the difficulty of commodifying attention and capturing attention is, uh, and what, if there are sort of new sources of difficulty and opacity in a digital environment, as opposed to in the Mad Men, smoky, uh, martini-filled room, what some of those, what some of those are, if you could elaborate on them. Sure, definitely. Well, maybe as a preface to this question, I think there's like, uh, there's a great critique, I suppose, that I've received from some people, which is, um, why do people, why have we built this enormous surveillance, you know, capitalism infrastructure, if it doesn't actually do anything? Um, and, you know, one response is actually that there's, there's actually, uh, I think, in some ways, um, you know, a need to differentiate digital advertising from earlier generations of advertising, right? And as I talked about earlier, right, like the fact that it is data driven and therefore more scientific as a form of advertising um, was actually and is still a very powerful comparative advantage that digital advertising claims as against magazines and billboards and TV and, and all this stuff. And, you know, in some ways, the claim of the book isn't necessarily that digital advertising uniquely doesn't work. It's definitely to make the claim more that this advertising is potentially just as bad as all the other forms of sort of advertising that we've had in the past in terms of measurability, right? In terms of the ability to see whether or not it's actually making an impact. But, and I think there's two cases here that are maybe sort of unique though in the extra layers of kind of obfuscation that we see in programmatic advertising. The first one is the case of brand safety, which I find is really interesting, which is basically that this kind of programmatic ad system is so big, so complex and so automated uh, it turns out that sometimes your messaging ends up next to a video that a white supremacist produced, right? And despite the, the, the greatest minds of a generation using AI and all these other tools to try to prevent this, the marketplace just can't eliminate this problem from the system. And what it indicates to me is that there's a great deal of opacity in, you know, why an ad ends up in someone's browser is actually unclear even to the people that run the system. Uh, which I think is, is really interesting. A second kind of opacity I'll point out um, is really what I call sort of like the monopolist's opacity. So a number of years ago, Facebook said, everybody needs to pivot to video. Video, video, video. It's going to be the greatest thing in the whole wide world. And a lot of people fired a bunch of journalists and say, we're going to hire a bunch of video producers to do this. 
And it turned out basically that Facebook, either through incompetence or malice or some combination of both, had overestimated these statistics about how much people were watching Facebook video by something like 60 to 80 percent. Um, and I think that's a really interesting kind of opacity because it's built on market power, right? There's no, there's no way for advertisers to force Facebook to give more transparency. So they sort of have to take the word of these companies. And so I do think that there are special aspects that make this market more opaque than others. But I agree with you that I think there's a lot of similarity to kind of earlier generations of ads. And do you think, um, since you, you've spoken to the problem of monopoly power, and obviously that's a topic on a lot of our minds, uh, given given the new news out of, out of Congress on antitrust, do you think your sort of redescription or rediagnosis of the state of online advertising can help us think about monopoly in a new way? Does it change the way we, we think about sort of antitrust problems in the tech industry? I think it maybe does in two ways. Uh, one of them is that, you know, it's unclear if the data advantage is actually a real one in the end, which I think is really intriguing. There's sort of been this kind of, um, you know, accepted wisdom that basically like the data collected by Google allows it to create products that are extremely sticky and that self-reinforces and therefore there's no way to kind of break through the moat of these companies. Um, and I think in some ways the account of the book questions like whether or not that data advantage is real, right? Like that, like, it's sort of interesting. I think that there was a critique of big data that was like, this big data reveals nothing. But in some ways, we don't apply that same logic to the data that these big companies have and their market position. And I think in some ways, like, we should sort of view their, their claims or even those fears with a little bit of, of skepticism. I think the, the second one is whether or not uh, sort of there would be much harm in blocking access by these monopolies to certain types of resources. So, you know, a lot of the companies have said, look, the social contract is you get the product for free and we get the data to target ads to you, right? But there's a lot of evidence right now that even when you eliminate all that data, advertising can be just as effective. And so it also, I think, eliminates that claim of sort of, you know, there's a trade going here that we've all, quote unquote, agreed to. That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask towards the end of the book, you do sort of get into suggestions for what is to be done. What are some measures that could be taken uh, to ameliorate or forestall or control this impending crisis uh, that you, you see possible in the attention marketplace? And I was wondering if you could speak to that a bit. Uh, you have some interesting historical analogies as well as you know proposals for things that haven't happened yet. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about those suggestions? Sure, definitely. Yeah, I was joking with someone, uh, I think earlier this week about sort of like, there's one way of reading the book, which is a kind of attentional Marxism, where you're basically like, there's these contradictions in the marketplace that will just bring it down. And so if we hate advertising, we just need to wait, right? And, and the, the arc of history will take its course. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm not so certain, right? Like, I do think that there's this time bomb. But the interesting thing about market bubbles is that they're very robust, right? If you think about, you know, economic indicators in 2007, they would have told you that these subprime mortgages were like the way to go. Collateralized debt obligations were like the thing. Um, and I think there's a kind of a similar case here. And, and my worry is that letting it grow and grow and grow and eventually blow up um, will exact a really big human cost, right? And it's, I think it's more than just a matter of like Mark Zuckerberg having a, a billion less dollars, right? You think about the entire kind of media ecosystem and news ecosystem that kind of like rests on this programmatic ad structure. 
Um, and I think there ends up being very real concerns about what happens if that, that breaks all of a sudden. And so I guess in the book, I advocate for the notion that we can, we can sort of deflate this bubble. The idea is to kind of like reduce its credibility and like basically have a kind of handbrake um, on the idea that we can slow this down and eventually kind of create the room for new models to emerge. And there's kind of two things that I advise here. You know, the first one is kind of taking a look and inspiration from the capital markets, right? And um, there's a really interesting kind of Great Depression era history about how the Securities Act of 1933 came to be. But the end result basically is that like the government mandates a certain level of transparency in selling stocks. And if you don't offer that level of transparency, there's legal consequences, right? And um, obviously, this is not a solution for every financial crisis, because obviously there are financial crises after 1933. But it was actually really powerful as a way of kind of creating more transparency in the marketplace. So we even knew what was going on in the first place. And so one of the arguments of the book is that we should create similar transparency regimes in these attentional marketplaces, right? That we should have more data on how things are targeted, whether or not they are effective, and how much fraud is in the system. Um, the second one, which is a little bit more activisty, is sort of the notion of a, a research outfit that is kind of combination, um, you know, public policy research institute and group of trolls, essentially, uh, that is kind of working to kind of, you know, leak documents or otherwise kind of put pressure on the ad industry to change. Um, and as part of that, I've kind of set up an initial experiment on this front called Ad Leaker. It's sort of a signal number whereby people in the ad industry can drop me things that they're seeing. Uh, but I think we need more experiments like that to kind of put some more informational pressure in some ways on the industry. And, you know, at, at risk of asking you to speculate, what kind of relationships would you see between these entities you're describing and older institutions like the Internet Advertising Bureau or kind of older, uh, yeah, attempts to create mechanisms for accountability or transparency in this marketplace? Yeah, definitely. So what's an interesting thing to know is that the space is full of frenemies. Um, and I think like because the space is full of frenemies, it's brittle in ways that may be both powerful and sort of amusing to, to stir the pot in. Um, and one of the big tensions is between sort of these buyers of ads who basically have felt like for the last decade they've been forced to have to buy ads from Facebook um, and the companies themselves who have actually not offered a lot of transparency. And so I think there are these sort of interesting bedfellows that can be created between saying like Procter and Gamble, like maybe we should, you know, you should underwrite people who are trolling the ad tech industry because it's sort of in your interest to know what's going on. Um, and uh, again, I think there's sort of like interesting games to be played there about how can we get aspects of the ecosystem to fight one another in ways that they haven't in the past, but that would be quite productive. I hope we're going to get the Procter and Gamble critical trolling fellowship, you know, call circulating. Yeah, it'll be, be laundered <laughs> through a series of intermediaries. It'll be very, uh, very cyberpunk. <laughs> it sounds perfect. Um, I'd wanted uh, to ask, you know, I sort of alluded to this in, in the introduction, but I think that because as your book demonstrates, and as we've been talking about, so much of the internet is built on advertising and on sort of the logics and imperatives of advertising. I think that what's part of what's so powerful about what you've done is I really think it has implications for just so many different areas of critical work on technology. And since we have you know, a data and society audience here, and I think a number of folks who are engaged in their own research and, and projects, grappling with the power of, of big tech. I wondered if you could speak a little bit to how you imagine or how you hope this book 
might change how we do work in areas you know, you can pick one like disinformation or thinking about privacy, which you've alluded to a bit, or thinking about public health and the tech addiction issue or, or fiction, depending how we want to, how much about a, a certain Netflix film we want to talk or not. Uh, but I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on how folks in the audience who are engaged in critical work uh, might do their work differently as a result of your book. Sure. So I think there's two things. Uh, one is maybe a, a, a frame or a way of a lens for thinking about some of these issues. And then I think the second one is a, is a, a matter of activist strategy, which I'd love to get into. Um, so the, the lens that I, I really came away with uh, from the book is the degree to which ads are uh, almost the whole way of reading the kind of surface of the web. Right, in the sense that you can look at any feature online and say, how did advertising like, cause this to be? And more often than not, because advertising has been so ubiquitous in many of the services that we just think of online, it becomes this great way of kind of like reading you know, the, the internet that is. Um, and so the example that I've been using a lot, just because I think it's like very salient, is the, the, the incidence of the like button, right? Which is at this point, if you had a social media platform that didn't have a like button, you'd probably be slightly frustrated. You'd be like, I can't interact on this platform in the way that I'm used to. But of course, the reason that you have a like button is because having an explicit indication that you are engaging with a piece of content makes it easier for, you to, for someone to profile what you like online. It also makes it easier to figure out how much engagement occurs with an ad that you've launched, right? And so you can give a whole account of this very, very tiny building block of the web um, as being generated by these broader economic forces. And I think that there's a, there's a worthwhile kind of intellectual exercise there. Uh, it's both a parlor game, I think, and a, and a useful kind of research agenda in like kind of deconstructing all of these sort of UX elements um, in, in the sort of like logic of advertising. Um, and, uh, and I think that's, that's kind of a, that sort of thing that I've, I've personally felt is like kind of compelling and, and interesting coming out of the book that I, I wanna think about some more. I think the second one, though, is this kind of interesting challenge that I think the, the book throws down for uh, tech critics in the space, um, which is to what degree does tech critique end up forwarding the claims of tech industry and sort of the, the degree to which sort of the strategy for tech critics should be to, you know, make a fool of the tech industry uh, or to dramatize the, the, the danger of the tech industry. And I think genuinely there's a battle between those two incentives um, because I think that on one hand you want to provoke a mass movement, right? And so sometimes it's really critical because, you know, David needs to fight Goliath, right? We need to say our adversary is Mark Zuckerberg and he has a mind control array and we need to defeat him. Um, uh, on the other hand, though, it gives an incorrect account in my mind as to like what the source of power is and what we should really be concerned about, right? So this is kind of like the, I know some people have been using it, but like maybe we should sort of shred surveillance capitalism and just talk about capitalism, right? And it's kind of the degree to which like the technology kind of gets in the way of kind of resolving the, the deeper issue. Um, and, and I do think that one of the interesting aspects of sort of the ad industry is, is how much how much it is a mirror image of kind of the stagecraft of data that we see in other places, right? Which is so much of it is the authority of having this huge data set and the power of being able to target that. Like maybe the goal is that we should kind of reduce sort of the public sense that that is really where the danger lies. Um, and, and it's something that's certainly been done with great success, I feel, in the AI case, right? Where it feels like a lot of the critique of AI now is it just simply doesn't work and that's why we shouldn't use it. 
and like maybe that's a tactic that should be used uh, elsewhere as well as we think about like how do we frame up these issues for the public and try to create create change so maybe a couple ideas um and obviously the the social dilemma is in there and i'm happy to go into it for sure <laughs> No, I promised myself we would not talk about the social dilemma, despite uh, it being my fault for having brought yeah. it up. I mean, talking about it is to forward the message of it. So, yeah. Well, precisely. <laughs> uh, we don't want to participate in, you know, the the radical change from time spent to time well spent, which I believe is now also a Facebook, a Facebook slogan. I imagine some of us in the audience today are scholars and some folks are maybe activists or people who are engaged in different ways or who want the force of their criticism or research to reverberate in different ways. Uh, and I was wondering, you know, if we are, if there are times when it's useful to have a big narrative like surveillance capitalism, or even maybe a narrative like um, like tech humanism, you know, this idea that, you know, the idea that your kids are going to become addicted automatons to their phone might be more powerful in motivating certain people at certain times uh, than the idea that massive corporations that control huge parts of our democracy need to be brought under democratic control. I'm curious whether you see anything about the present moment that indicates like particular opportunities or a need to be strategic one way or another. I mean, do you think that those big David and Goliath narratives have now done the work of setting the stage or making a broader public concerned about these issues. And now is a time for more nuanced description and critique, or is it the opposite? We still need the David and Goliath story, or is it always both that you need some people doing one and some doing the other? Any thoughts on timing right now? Yeah, so I, I think about this a lot in the context of a lot of the debates that have happened around machine learning fairness, which I think is really interesting, right? Which for the long time there, I think there was a, a, a productive ecosystem, right? Between like the people who were hammering companies using AI, but, but mostly in the sense that like it was this crazy dangerous thing that would destroy everything and be like your nightmares from sci-fi. And then there's a group that would basically would be on the other side of the game, talking to the companies and basically saying like, look, those activists out there are crazy, but while we're here, you should maybe implement better privacy practices with your data. Um, and so there was kind of a productive ecosystem between sort of the, the kind of like activists on the street and sort of like the incrementalists on the ground. Um, but I think part of the trouble is that eventually the companies were like, ah, you got us. We want to be more ethical around AI now, right? And then, and then the battle of co-option came, right? And the question was just like, how far did we want to push versus you know, is consolidating the gains that we thought we gained, right, from pushing the companies in a certain direction. And I do think that my experience from that lends me to the idea that, like, there is a need, particularly at this time, to keep the standards up, right? Like that, like, the, the thing that I struggle with is I do think that, like, the drama of the David and the Goliath and the drama of, you know, the mind control ray in Menlo Park um, is, is really necessary just because I think, like, in order for some of the really critical changes to happen, it feels like you need to make it a mass movement. And for that, I think you sacrifice a little bit of like accuracy. Um, and, and I think that's okay, right? Because I do think that that will be sort of kind of like the mass politics of trying to get change to occur. Because at this point, it feels like the, the tools that really need to come down are like the force of law, right? Or the, you know, the force of the state to the extent that it can be reclaimed. Um, and, and those things I think take more than, um, you know, these kind of like incremental steps. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, you know, you're someone who's worked in the tech industry, you've sort of worked in research and policy, you've had this very interesting and variegated uh, career. 
And it's given you a lot of insight into how, say, the programmatic ad industry works on the inside. I'm curious whether you have ideas about how researchers who maybe haven't worked in tech or maybe they have, how different kinds of stakeholders in this space can do the kind of research that you've done or embark on developing a different language uh, for describing the, the platforms, which I, you know, speaking with you, I can never forget that platform itself is sort of an industry type term, uh, because I think, and this, and I mentioned earlier, there's this call out at Data and Society for this against platform determinism uh, conference or workshop, which seems really salient uh, to a lot of what you're talking about. But I'm curious, yeah, I think part of why we all use the hype language or why many people end up using the hype language is because it's really hard to get information uh, beyond the press release if you're not, you know, on the inside. And I'm just curious if you have thoughts or advice about methods uh, that scholars can use or other kinds of researchers can use as we try to build out a different kind of account. Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know. I. I <laughs> I had a conversation with my parents over the weekend and I think they still like want me to get a real job like at some point. <laughs> there was a lot of benefit to being at Google for a few years uh, and it's in part just because like it's useful to know what parts of the company are uh, fighting one another, I suppose, right? Like and the degree to which these companies are kind of like these like mass, mass nations that have these constituencies that are always warring with one another. Um, and, and I think that that has been really, I think, helpful, both as a matter of kind of like scholarly account, right? Which is like, how do we understand what's going on from the outside? Um, and then also as a matter of like, kind of like activism strategy, right? Which is like, sometimes you wanna create messaging, which actually causes parts within the company to, to gear grind with one another, right? And so part of this is alliances, part of this is like playing frenemies against one another, um, and I do think that like that is that is helpful and sharpening, right, in terms of the research and I think the, the work. Um, but I, again, I don't know. I like I, I feel like one of the continuous kind of structural questions in the space of like tech policy is like how does one get into tech policy, anyways? And it doesn't seem like there has been any particular pipeline to doing this. Uh, so I, I think I don't know. Again, like if I have one weird tip to use the language of banner ads, it's just been that like I can't hold down a job for more than. You know, 24 months. I don't know if that's helpful or responsive to your question. But. No, definitely. I mean, I think it's a very practical question in a way, this question of like how to get information about how companies and technologies work um, and how to maintain the kind of inside outside stance that lets one develop the kind of critique you've done. So yeah, and I think anonymity, right, for what it's worth, I mean, I think the final thing that I'd mention is I do think like anonymity ends up being a powerful tool here. Um, and it's a little bit like the Voices of the Valley projects, right, which is like, can you get people to, you know, at all levels of the company to kind of disclose things to you? And uh, I guess you play a little bit of a spy in making that happen. Um, and just to say, again, Tim does have a, a project to help people disclose information <laughs> if they want to uh, at Adweeker, which maybe CJ dropped in the chat. Uh, we're, I wanted to ask you um, a sort of more human question or slightly less conceptual question. I know you've been sort of incubating and working on the ideas in this book for a while. Uh, and as I mentioned to the audience, Tim wrote this great piece that I see as sort of tied up with these ideas for logic all the way back in late 2016 or early 2017. I was curious what changed or what new discoveries you made as you tried to put this argument into book form. Uh, did, was there anything you learned in your 
in your research once you actually started working on it as a book that surprised you? Um, were there ideas that you'd been developing that changed as you sort of wrote them out and expanded them? Could you speak to that process a bit? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, I've, I've been working on this for a little while. Um, the, some of the arguments in the book come from a, a kind of uh, white paper or working paper, if you will, that I did with a friend, Adi Kamdar, uh, a number of years ago called Peak Ads. And if you want to kind of play the game of metaphors, right, the game there was uh, what, what is, you know, can we use like the fuel industry, natural resources as a way of talking about like depleting attention against ads and whether or not that has impacts on the ad industry. Um, and so this has been kind of percolating for a really long time. And I think a number of people have like cited this like terrible self-serve website I set up with a PDF on it uh, to publicize this paper. Um, and so, so I think like it was a useful exercise to kind of sit down and be like, okay, so what is the, what is, how do I actually articulate this argument in a cleaner, long format way? I would say probably the biggest surprise, which is maybe less of process, but more of substance, is that we have this account of Silicon Valley, which is the engineers are always in charge. Um, and uh, the ad industry or the programmatic ad industry is actually an interesting case where it's actually a little bit flipped, right? Which is where the engineers designed a lot of the infrastructure and did a lot of the work to kind of make the kind of real-time bidding algorithmic trading system actually work. Um, but the people who actually oversaw its architecture were former Wall Street traders. They were economists, right? Like, and, and so there actually is kind of like this moment where in the driver's seat is actually not the engineers. Um, and, you know, it's another industry that I think we have a great deal of discomfort with. But it is sort of interesting that like not everything that Silicon Valley produces is a, is a product of Silicon Valley ideology. Right, and that in some ways it actually ends up being a Trojan horse for other kinds of ideologies that are playing out, which I, again, I had always thought of very, I thought that was quite surprising, right? Because, uh, you know, my thinking on the ad industry was previously that like this was largely like the tech sector disrupting traditional marketing, where actually I think it's like actually like finance through the medium of technology disrupting traditional advertising, um, which I think is a much more complicated and interesting story. That's fascinating. That brings me back to that office of Google people in New York City. Did those people lose their jobs in the end? Or is that, was that role automated? or uh, They were, yeah. A lot of them were automated out of a job. Oh, well. And so a different sort of New York finance tech dynamic persevered, but not the folks in that Google office. That's right. Um, we have so many good questions coming up in the Q&A, and I think they're meaty ones that will take a while. So I thought maybe... Um, You'd shift over to, I'd shift over to asking you some of them. Uh, we have a question from Babao Zhang, uh, where Babao says, and I'll paraphrase, I hope that's all right. Uh, I see a paradox or puzzle. Uh, on the one hand, there's a lot of research that you cite that says product ads and campaign ads don't work. On the other hand, there's been all this research, including research from data and society about micro -target, targeting and political radicalization. And how do you think about this paradox? How is advertising different from the po political radicalization or these other forms of persuasion? Or do you see it as a paradox at all? Yeah, I think one of the problems in the space, well, let me put it this way. I mean, I think there's one way of reading the book, right? Which is Tim believes advertising never works, right? And I, I to be clear, I don't think that's actually my position, right? We have we have even personal cases where you're like, I saw an ad and I was so persuaded that I, you know, I bought this mattress on Instagram, right? 
Um, and so I don't necessarily want to make the claim that all advertising doesn't work. What I try to do is try to think about advertising as a marketplace and to think about the health of the marketplace as a whole. And so part of the problem here is that we do have lots of cases in which advertising can work. The question is just as structurally as a marketplace, like, does it, is it actually the case? Um, and I think in the case of political advertising, it's, it's complicated, right? I think we have, for example, this Cambridge Analytica report that came out, I think, just earlier this week, uh, that basically said, look, all this psychographic targeting didn't really make a material impact on Brexit, right? On the other hand, I think you've got um, this argument was being made to me by uh, Cory Doctorow, who has also been thinking a lot about ads, who's basically like, look, the main benefit of online ads is that you can basically say, you can tell uh, constituencies uh, that you have terrible opinions that you don't want other people to know about, right? So you can basically be like, Tim, I'm secretly a white supremacist, right? And like, that's actually like a very effective way of mobilizing certain types of voters. It's again, very hard to experiment with. Um, but I guess, Baba, my response to your question would be sort of that I think we do have cases and that not all forms of advertising are made equal. But it's again, I think I am sort of in a situation where I'm trying to parse out like, what are the ads that really matter? versus what are the 90% of ads that are actually circulating on the internet every day. Um, and, and I think that's, that's an ongoing project. I think it's an empirical question that, that requires a lot of work to answer correctly. Thanks. Matt Gerzen had had a sort of follow-up question in response to Baba's question asking, how do ad tech systems and recommendation algorithms differ in terms of efficacy and measurability? And I think that was sort of implicit in your answer to Baobao that maybe, you know, a white supremacist video on YouTube is different than an ad for shoes or diapers or I don't know, an energy drink that pops up in between. Um, but also, you know, algorithms and ad, al recommendation algorithms and ad tech, we sort of talk about together but separately in this space. Do you think there are important differences in how they can be measured? Yeah, I think there are. Um, and I do think that, and this is getting very wonky, but hopefully the folks, the, the folks that are on the call will find it interesting is, so programmatic advertising, right? This like highly, this high frequency algorithmic trading of attention um, constitutes an enormous percentage of the ads that are distributed on a daily basis online. Uh, and there are smaller segments of online advertising that aren't traded through programmatic, right? So one of them is what's known as uh, SponCon, right? Or sponsored content, right? Which is uh, you pay Tim and Tim is on Twitter basically being like, you should really buy this mattress, right? And um, that's very hard to detect when it's occurring, right? It's very difficult to ad block. Um, and it looks a lot like content that we think might actually be influential in a way that a banner ad is not, right? And so a recommendation algorithm has some of the similar characteristics, right? Which is like, how is the uh, recommendation algorithm delivered to you? What does it look like? Um, do you think about it as an ad or intrusion versus like content that you like? And all those I think influence the, 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 the impact of these systems. Um, one of the questions that is asked by the book, though, is that it is programmatic advertising that has produced the most money and allowed the companies to scale the fastest. So it's unclear whether or not these segments of advertising that don't have these same pathologies could grow or replace the kind of sort of automated systems that we have right now. We have a question from Joyce, oh, sorry, from Steve Perkins, who asks, would stronger data privacy laws like the California Consumer Protection Act or general data protection regulation in the EU slow down or change programmatic advertising real-time bidding? Could those, what kind of impact do you see those regulations having on this industry? Definitely. So 
one thing you learn looking into the history of financial bubbles, right, is that these bubbles continue for a very long time. And there's this gap between what people think something is worth versus what it actually ends up being worth. And essentially, the bubble pops when people realize or there's a cascading stampede of people that feel like, oh, my God, what I thought I spent all this money on is actually not worth very much. And I do think that these privacy laws like GDPR, or CCPA, uh, have the potential to kind of create that like Looney Tunes, like running over the cliff experience, where basically like these privacy laws will break the ability for you to collect data. And then the question is, are, is your advertising actually any worse than it was before? Um, and I think in many cases, the answers will be no, which I think will leave the ad industry with a really big question, right? Which is what are we collecting all this data for? Um, and, and did that data ever amount to anything? Um, and I do think that that will, in some ways, uh, potentially create the precursors for a larger bubble. Building on that, there's a question from Adam Perry who asks if you could speak a bit more to the financial market analogy uh, mm -hmm. put out by programmatic agencies and platforms. Is it just a metaphor? Is bidding um, an effective price, price discovery mechanism? Or does it actually resemble the stock market? Uh, maybe I, we, you could elaborate a bit more on the work uh, that, that, that that comparison is doing in the book and, and how literal versus metaphorical it is. Sure, definitely. So in the early days of the programmatic ad ecosystem, it was, it was very literal, right? So you actually have these incredible uh, articles that were written that appear in the Wall Street Journal, which are like, you, pretty soon you'll be able to sell attention like pork bellies. Uh, like that's like an actual headline. And a lot of people who did these companies, right, a lot of them were actually based in New York, uh, took the capital markets as an explicit thing that they would use to kind of architect their system. Um, uh, Hal Varian, who is like famously this economist at Google, implemented a lot of kind of uh, auction bidding uh, theory into how ads are bought and sold online. And so I think the connection is very, very clear um, in, the, in the sort of early days uh, of, of the generation of these systems. Now that I think we're 15, 20 years on, right, it does feel like there is changes in the way this works. Um, and, uh, but, but I do think that, so one of the arguments that you sometimes hear from ad people is like, well, it's not really like stocks because you can't, like once you buy a stock, you hold it and then you resell it. But in this case, you basically just buy the right to show someone an ad, you know, at the point that they upload a page. So I think that there are small differences that are like that, right, in, in the comparison. But I think most of the arguments that I make in the book are sort of based on, in some ways, kind of the underlying psychology of market bubbles. Then they do rely on like, attention is like a stock, AKA, you know, we will have 2008 again. That's a useful clarification. Um, I think of you as using it almost as a kind of exploratory device or grid to think through all these different, these different issues in the book. We have a question from Lee McVegan, uh, who, which I think builds on what you were just speaking to, who asks, how would you connect your critique or demystification of the legitimacy of data-driven optimization to what happens in the management sciences and behavioral sciences at the most prestigious and influential universities in the US, um, mm -hmm. e.g. recent Nobel Prizes for auction theorists. It strikes me that, that what you're talking about yeah, has ramifications sure. <laughs> beyond, beyond ad tech as well. And maybe um, definitely. Uh, so, so I've been thinking a lot about the idea that there are kind of two two prototypical semantic wars that are going on around technology, right? One is the semantic war over what technology is, right? Like what it should mean, right? 
And then I think there's a battle over like what this label should actually apply to, right? So if you imagine a map, there's kind of like a battle over the boundaries of this territory. And then there's a battle over like what the territory itself implies, right? And, um, and I do think that some of these data battles, right, kind of play into this in a number of different ways, right? Like one of them is how much should we, how much should we consider this data-driven optimization to be something with power versus just like a, a, a kind of theater, a kind of performance art that has, that speaks the language of power, right? And I do think that that ends up being, that has ramifications outside of just talking about technology, right? Um, and, uh, and so, so, yeah, I do think that, for example, the, the, the kind of like legitimization of certain types of modeling, right, through Nobel Prizes and stuff is, is kind of built into that as well. But it's also a question of like, again, the, the question of boundary or the question of territory, right, which is like, how much should uh, a thing be considered like uniquely data-driven development versus like the data-driven development of, I don't know, uh, uh, qualitative research, right? Um, and I do think that like that is also part of the interesting battle that I think plays into right like some of the kind of like university culture and sort of the the machinery of authority kind of around some of these systems. So maybe a couple of thoughts trying to get at that that problem. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I think that in the academy we sometimes tend to say everything is a technology. We can talk about everything as a kind of technology, at least my corner of the academy. Um, but that's a useful those two boundaries you talk about draw useful distinction. Uh, one last question to pull from the Q&A, although it's just vanished because it moved, uh, but my memory of the question, I forget the name of the questioner now, I'm sorry, uh, but my memory of the question is, do you see an alternative kind of funding model, given how important ads have been as sort of a funding model for, for the internet we have or the internet as it is, do you see alternative models that could replace programmatic advertising? Do you see that as necessary, desirable? Yeah, so... I think there's a big question, and I think reasonable minds can differ about whether or not replacement is desirable, right? So imagine we basically came up with the capitalist version of free energy, right? We basically were like, we're going to pull this advertising heart out of the internet, and then we're going to just plug in this thing that prints money. Uh, I don't know. It's like some blockchain thing, right? Um, would, we, would we want it, right? Because arguably one of the problems, one of the pathologies of sort of technology platforms is their incredibly fast growth. Uh, and the sort of incentives that puts on organizations that need to have that level of growth. Um, and in some ways, like, I think programmatic advertising has given us very unrealistic expectations about, like, how companies should grow and develop, right? Because the idea is, look, if you're not turning billions and billions of dollars within five years, right, like, it's not worth it. And that's a kind of growth pattern that's really only possible with this sort of advertising flywheel you've created. So I think there is a, there's just firstly a kind of values question, a normative question, which is, would we want to replace this with something else that kind of grew and scaled in the same way? One of the things, though, in the book is, uh, and again, to kind of reiterate, right, like, is not necessarily argue that all advertising should be removed. Uh, the real question you should ask people who, who take that position is, do you think advertising should be the monoculture that drives the biggest companies in the world? And, you know, I guess I would humbly submit, like, no, I don't think that should be the case particularly when you consider that advertising has stifled a lot of other potential business models in the space. Um, I think I told this anecdote uh, a few nights ago at City Lights, but you know, I've talked to a couple of friends who have pitched companies in Silicon Valley, and the response has been, 
well, why don't you just do it on an advertising model? It would scale much faster and we know that it works, right? And that kind of ultimate conservatism of venture capital has actually shoved a bunch of businesses in that direction. And so, so in some ways, I think like my hope is that we have, you know, a, just the a diversity of more business models, that it's something more robust than the biggest companies making most of their money from this one thing. And I do think you see some interesting models, right? I mean, the obvious one is subscription, right? Which has its access questions. Um, but I think in some ways would force the question on like, what's, what's actually fundamental here? Do we want to subsidize access or require that you provide free access to certain types of people? Um, so I do think that there's a lot of benefits to subscriptions. I do think also like that the media is experimenting more with these, uh, with like co-ops, I think is also like an interesting model, right? Which is like not just the business model, but then what is the distribution of like power and wealth that occurs within these organizations is equally key. So I think there's innovations, not just in, there's innovations on multiple levels here, I guess is what I'd say. I had said that would be the last question, but I saw one more that I want, that I want to pull out of the Q&A and ask you, and it's from Maya Ganesh in Berlin. And Maya asks, it's a methods question. Uh, one, I like to ask all kinds of tech researchers and writers, how do you study and write about something that changes a lot? What's your strategy for keeping on top of your narrative even as it changes or is tech not actually changing as much as we think? Sure, um, I, again, I'll drop another weird tip, I suppose. Uh, like I do think that um, one of my passions in life is the collection of obscure or niche trade journals. Um, and it is really interesting the degree to which like there is this kind of professional shop talk which is actually very hard to find online or in the mainstream news or in the scholarly literature, mostly because it's like very obscure and very niche. And when you encounter it, it just like looks like complete garbage. And so I do think that like, I don't know, one of the ways I've kept up to date on programmatic advertising is like to read like the trade journals, um, just because like some of them get into like these very niche discussions, but I think are really useful for trying to figure out like what's going on here. Um, and this is a community that largely kind of doesn't want to be found often. And so there's kind of a security through obscurity that they've enjoyed for a really long time. Uh, but, but I think that you can sort of break through that wall um, by, by kind of trying to dip into their professional literature. So for whatever that's worth. When you get a tip from Tim Huang, you want to take it. Um, we're in our last few minutes here together. I wanted to ask, is there anything else you want to speak to in closing or anything we didn't get a chance to discuss that you want to share before we sign off? No, I think this is great. We covered so much ground. Uh, it's really, really fun. Well, in that case, since we have three minutes left, I'll pull up uh, one more question. Ifi <laughs> uh, Ugada asks, how can one engage in this talk, learn and share resources? Are there forums or Discord channels or other places where you're sharing? Or maybe, I guess, others in the group can't speak. Sorry, the undemocratic uh, Zoom webinar. But uh, Tim, are there other places where you'll be publishing or sharing information about this, this work? Sure, yeah, so I'm going to continue to write about this. Um, there's a number of kind of other like weird side articles like B-roll that I'm kind of like, you know, seeding out through op-eds. Um, Twitter, such as it is, is a good place to find that. Um, I'm just at Tim Huang, T-I-M-H-W-A-N-G. Would you like to tell us about your ad campaign? <laughs> oh, sure. Well, yeah, this is a, maybe a final funny, amusing anecdote to end on. Um, FSG came to me, I'm a publisher, and was like, uh, normally we do paid ads. Do you want to buy paid ads to promote your book? Um, of which, like, I don't know, the whole point of the book is that it's garbage and it doesn't work, uh, and I don't want you to waste your money. But they insisted. So um, a friend of mine, Helen Zhang, who's an amazing designer, 
put together the ugliest, ugliest ads that she could find. Uh, and it, it was very much kind of an homage to an earlier generation of banner advertisements, like the one weird tip or um, linguists hate him, which is another one that I'm a big fan of. Um, and they ran. So they're running on Facebook now. You might see them. And, uh, and um, uh, I guess Intelligentsia Mag M plus one was also forced to run it, um, uh, thankfully. Uh, and so if you get their newsletter, you can also see the terrible animated gift there. Featuring a photo, a photo of you, if I remember correctly, from my, uh, my M plus one newsletter. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you to everyone for joining us. And thank you, Tim, for sharing your expertise today. Uh, we've been posting links in the chat window where you can buy Tim's book. It's a very attractive book. I'll hold up one more time like a cornball. Yeah, we should have uh, sold an ad-free version, I feel. But, but. <laughs> uh, which is part of this new series of four titles from Logic Books out this week. Uh, and uh, I hope that you can use the tags from the Q&A to keep the conversation going. And before you leave, if you have a moment, please do fill out the short three-question survey. Uh, Thank you so much again, Tim. Thank you for, uh, to everyone for joining us and to uh, CJ, Vigo, and Eli behind the scenes uh, for making it all look good. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>